When the brief, wondrous life of Oscar Wilde was uh, published in 2008, Time magazine named it the novel of the year, and it went on to win the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. New York Times critic Michiko Kakutani wrote that it is so original, it can only be described as Mario Vargas Llosa meets Star Trek meets David Foster Wallace meets Kanye West. I'm so pleased that Juno Diaz was able to join us today to talk about his novel, which is the August selection of the Leonard Lopez Show Book Club, now available in paperback from Riverhead Books. It's also a paperback. I mean, Riverhead is also releasing a paperback edition of uh, Juno's most recent book, This Is How You Lose Her. That'll be out next month. And Juno, welcome back to our show. Leonard, thank you so much for having me back. We also hope that our listeners have been reading the book along with us. If you have and you have any questions for Juno Diaz, you can join the conversation by calling us at 212-433-9692 or writing us on our show page at WNYC.org or on Facebook or Twitter. Now, does it feel weird talking about a book you wrote many years ago, or is this book still near and dear to your heart? Yeah, no, I spent 11 years uh, writing it, and they always say everyone's got a different formula with uh, breakups. You know, they say it takes one year uh, for every year you dated to get over a relationship. And I feel like for me, finishing a novel of this length was like a breakup. And so I'm still in the recovering from it. So it's still close. Well, your narrator is Junior, who you continue to use as a character and a narrator. Uh, is he the same Junior in the the more recent book? This is how you lose her, as he was in Drown, and in Oscar Wilde. You know, I I, I sort of kind of took a real good for me. What was a good shortcut was that I always said to myself, because Junior is going to be writing from different points in his life, that'll allow me the flexibility to alter his voice as mine alters. So supposedly the same cat, but of course because he's older in this most recent book and in Oscar Wilde's older than Drown, you know, it allows for variation. And we see more of him, his evolution into adulthood, his various relationships and how they always seem to go wrong in This Is How You Lose Her. Uh, but what makes you keep on coming back to him? Is he uh, the, the guy, the character you see as your alter ego? In some ways, an alter ego. But in other ways, he's uh, a perfect, we could call him a perfect instrument or a perfect implement for me to approach a lot of the material, the issues, the conversations that I'm really, really passionate about. He's, you know, I always say about him is he's simultaneously screwed up in the very places that he is the most honest and observant about. So, you know, he's a messed up dude around masculinity, around sexuality, but he's also a really, I think, acute um, witness to these issues as well. And he's aware of what he's doing. Much of the time still does it. To his grim dismay. <laughs> in Oscar Wow, he's a friend of Oscar's sister, Lola. Does he start off looking out for Oscar because he's interested in her? I think so. But I also think that's his own cover story of how, in some ways, for someone like Junior, a character who has such great difficulty in being himself. I mean, part of the reason you've got a guy like this who has so many girls is because 
being comfortable with himself or being himself, showing himself is impossible. And then he meets someone like Oscar, who for all of Oscar's problems, you could never accuse Oscar of not being himself. He has a purity, which I think Junior really longs for. On the other hand, he seems impossible to help because he's always in his own world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think, again, each of them have such difficult challenges. You know, Junior cannot talk to Oscar about how to be a quote-unquote traditional urban boy. Well, Oscar cannot talk to Junior about how to be himself. And Oscar gets the nickname Oscar Wilde because uh, when he dresses up as Doctor Who one Halloween, people say he looks like Oscar Wilde. Yeah, uh, a homophobic jibe at university earns him his like kind of permanent lifelong nickname. Well, and homophobic simply because he's a nerdy kid who's overweight? Yeah, and because, um, you know, in this group of boys at Rutgers University, this group of kind of, you know, over um, sort of testosterone boy, a guy who has no girlfriends, who has problems with girls, is highly suspect. Where did that character come from in your head? He came from a couple of things. First, it was just I wanted to write a character who was the farthest from whatever whatever formula there is of the traditional masculine figure, either in New Jersey and the Dominican Republic. But also, I came up, you know, through the school system. I was one of those kids who was sort of like targeted to go to university. I was one of those kids who was in honors classes. And I kind of wanted to honor the group of kind of Dominican immigrant kids that I grew up with who were nerds, who ended up in college, and who you don't ever see on television or movies. So did you play Dungeons and Dragons, uh, read a lot of science fiction, comic books? Oh, man, of course. I mean, I, I'm a kid from 1968. I came of age just when all video games and Dungeons and Dragons broke out. But, you know, again, everything is depends on its intensity. And Oscar... Uh, makes a, a nerd like me seem sort of like a Navy SEAL. Was that seen as unusual in the Dominican community? Well, so being into people, all the science fiction and fantasy. I think for most people that I grew up with, I can't speak for anyone else. Um, they just thought the fact that we that all got lumped into you read books, hmm. like alarming question. You read books, like I. Someone was saying, like you juggle, you know, flaming heads. That I think. It was all put together in this lump, smart thing. But science fiction and fantasy in an odd way, uh, I can see, is being connected to uh, an immigrant story. No question. Because you feel like you're from another world sometimes. Yeah, I think so, true, Leonard. And and, in an African diasporic, I mean, Greg Tate um, talked once, really, this wonderful conversation when he talks about how those of us from the African diaspora for most of our history in the New World, we had to be superhuman, A, to work on plantations, and B, to survive. And I liked that idea. Although in, uh, in the case of Dominican Republic, it shares an island with Haiti, and uh, uh, the Dominicans often m- took great pains to distinguish themselves from the Haitians who were much closer to the African diaspora. Well, I mean, again, I, I think that one must remember, I think that there is... So I would argue, you know, outside of sort of the national politics, there is the similarities between the two nations. The shared history is what really provokes national elites to try to draw a line between the two nations. You do open the book with a quote from the Fantastic Four. Ah, yeah, man. I'm, yeah, I'm a big fan. <laughs> 
Now, uh, we have invited listeners to uh, participate, and uh, we invite your calls at 212-433-9692. That's 212-433-WNYC. People have been writing in. Achilles wrote on Twitter that uh, this is the only book that she that's ever made her cry, and she tagged her tweet, Dominican Immigrant. Have you heard from other Dominican immigrants uh, that the book had a big impact on them? I mean, I have. It sounds like boasting, but I have. I have. I, I, you know, the other day I was stopped on the street um, by this group of young uh, women. One of them was Dominican. One of them was Puerto Rican. And they said, you know, um, you really had us bawling by the end of that book. And, you know, it's, I, at least for me, someone finished the book. <laughs> well, uh, Roy from Queens left this comment on our show page. He said, Oscar Wow is a brilliant book because, like Colson Whitehead's Sag Harbor, it destroys the notion that nerdiness and geekiness is monopolized by white and Asian males. Mr. Diaz, do you think the stigma of being a blurred, an African-American or Hispanic person who's smart and has a strong love for fanboy culture is disappearing or not? He says, I... Uh, being a blurred, think it is, yet slowly. Because Besides, in the 21st century, a black or brown man is better off being smart and college-educated than being a high school dropout. Well, no, I mean, I don't disagree, but with certain... Um, um, I don't disagree, but with certain sort of, like, caveats. I mean, I would argue that it all depends on the context. There are plenty... Look, I do a lot of work in high schools, and there are plenty of places and plenty of neighborhoods where to be for a boy to be seen with a book is still anathema. And certainly in the general culture, it's been getting easier. But I would argue there's still way too many spaces uh, in this country where the anti-intellectual sort of orthodoxy still reigns supreme. Well, you teach at MIT. Yes, sir. Are you seeing uh, more nerdy kids from uh, the... Uh the African-American and uh, Latino communities at your school? Yeah, MIT is a bad, like, I think that, that that would be what we would call a bad selection. It's, you know, the it's the top select college in engineering and sciences. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that. I think in general what I am seeing is that um, some of the lines around what is masculinity, some of the lines around what is open to a young black or brown boy, a Latino boy, has begun to soften a little bit, but not everywhere. The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde, uh, Juno Diaz's Pulitzer Prize winning novel, is the subject of the Leonard Lopez Show Book Club this month. Uh, we invite your calls at 212-433-9692. You can write us on our show page or on Facebook or Twitter, uh, where our tag is uh, at Leonard Lopez. You include history lessons about the Dominican Republic, mostly given as footnotes. Why did you do them as footnotes? Well, I think that that's sort of a, a textual game, which is I just kind of was interested in, I hate to say this, educating the reader while misleading them. I think that, um, you know, I, I wanted readers to pay attention to the wrong things. And it's so much easier to get readers to give authority to official-sounding histories than it is to get readers to give authority to sort of nerdish or popular culture ephemera. If my readers started paying attention to 
the comic books and the science fiction um, movies and some of the role-playing games that were appearing repeatedly, I think that they would – my plot would become too obvious. But it's also a guarantee that people are going to read that history because, at least from my own experience, if I see a footnote, my eye immediately goes down to it. Well, because me and you like to read. And, but in fact, I know a lot of people who they see footnotes and they have come and told me. They're like, I read your book, voided all the footnotes. <laughs> And I think it's for me, it's kind of this great thing because it's at once for some people a temptation, but for other people, it's something that they just avoid. Why in the story about immigrants uh, do you uh, write so much about Trujillo, who you also call the failed cattle thief? I know the names that we can't say on the radio. Uh, why is that so important to the story? Uh, and by the way, was he actually called those names, like the failed Cattle thief? Well, he was a failed cattle thief. So uh-huh. I think that there's not nothing wrong with giving him. Well, you know, why did he fail? He was a dictator. He could take all this the This is before he, he oh. became a kind of a, a U.S. Marine trained soldier and, you know, before he grabbed, seized control of the, of the, the nation. You know, I just think that many immigrants are followed by the shadows of their home culture. And the shadow of the dictatorship of Rafael. Leonidas Trujillo Molina. I think it was very deep, very dark, and very persistent. And I thought it would be dishonest to write about the Dominican diaspora in New Jersey without covering that. Well, would Junior's sense of Dominican history be uh, uh, inaccurate in some ways because it comes from uh, what other people have told him rather than from reading history books? Well, but I think that that's one of Junior's sort of one of Junior's strong points is how much archival work he does. I mean, he's he is real clear in Oscar Wow that he has read even some of the weirder books about Trujillo. And so I think Junior comes from multiple levels. He comes from what he's heard, what he's read, but he's also done interviews. And you've said that uh, the legacy remains today, the legacy of Trujillo remains today. We're talking about... How many years after he was toppled? Sure. I mean, think about the legacy of um, the 60s. They're still fussing. You know, the right wing is still like this is their great hobgoblin, all the stuff that happened in the 60s. I think that history doesn't fade as quickly as any of us would like to believe. Well, it hangs over Oscar's family. He believes he's cursed the, the Fuku. Right. What does that mean? Well, you know, but Oscar's interesting because Oscar, remember Oscar, when we meet Oscar, he knows nothing about Dominican history and he doesn't care. Now, that's why I thought he was perfect to show how the shadow of history can even affect those of us who have no ostensible connection to that history. As far as the Fuku is concerned, it's a term from the Dominican Republic to describe, um, again, a curse. And, of course, this curse specifically is circles around the Admiral um, Christopher Columbus and how this, you know, this figure who, quote, unquote, discovered the New World, who discovered the island, in many ways unleashes this tremendous bad luck across the world. And Oscar believes that the curse is keeping him from ever falling in love. And when he finally does, (laughs) it brings disaster. Well, one of his theories, I mean, you got to remember, Oscar, like Junior, is not completely convinced that this is true. And I thought that that was kind of fun because by having them both be skeptical in the middle of a story that is making an argument about a curse, you get a lot of room for the reader to disbelieve. We have some calls coming in, and I want to go now 
to Michael from Manhattan. Hi, Michael. You're on the air. Hey, how are you doing? Great work. I, I'm from uh, Dominican, uh, a Dominican background, and uh, you know, I, I was always taught, and and it's you know, and I and I affirm uh, Juno's work and his narrative, but. Uh, you know, there are many different types of Dominicans. You know, I come from like an Asian Dominican background, and and I I was always growing. I grew up with a lot of uh, how could I say intellectual inquiry, but not so much from coming to the United States, but from my parents in the Dominican Republic. And yes, the the Trujillo regime was horrible, but um, there was also a lot of pride within a lot of Dominicans, and and there were. There are a lot of educated people that came from a lot of that that terror, and so yes, um, there was a lot of terror. But uh, I, I also would like to mention, and, and I'd like to ask Juno about, you know, kind of like the, the intellectual tradition that creates the, the American immigration experience for many Dominicans. Right. I mean, I don't know if you've read the novel, but in the novel. Uh Oscar's, you know, the the sort of the the patriarch of Oscar's family is a doctor, a surgeon, a what what um, Joseph Conrad would have called a universal genius. It's a figure. He's a figure who reads in Latin. He's a figure who reads in French, who reads in three other languages, who is not only a surgeon, he's a folkloricist. He's a sort of natural philosopher. Um, he comes out of being educated in Mexico City. Um, therefore, in many, time, in many ways, the capital of Latino intellectual culture at that period. Um, so in many ways, I found in the book, I was not only referencing, but also honoring this sort of kind of intellectual community that was already placed in the Dominican Republic. But uh, is there a Dominican literary tradition of the sort that we associate with Mexico and oh, Cuba? Oh, no question. And- no question. I mean, we, of course, you know, we're talking about a tiny island, but there are figures of towering importance. I mean, one thinks of Pedro Mir. One thinks of Juan Bosch. Um, you know, there's an enormous, enormous range of um, writers, poets, um, certainly um I don't know if you're familiar with um, uh, René uh, de Risco Bermudez, um, someone who's an extraordinary um, essayist, uh, poet, really, really important figure. A, a listener, Steve Quester, wondered uh, if I would, if you could talk about Edwidge Danticat's farming of bones. He says he first learned of the Parsley Massacre in The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde. And now it's the subject of Danticat's book. Certainly. Her book came out first. Um, a, a really indelibly powerful and difficult novel. One of my favorite books from one of my favorite writers about one of the Western Hemisphere's um, most notorious genocides. And I got to tell you, um, a very, very brutal, brutal period. Um, on the island. 
Another listener wonders why you use so many Spanish words. Well, I mean, I think it's the same way, you know, the same way so many kind of continental writers use so much French in their books. In a way, I'm trying to capture the milieu of my characters, and my characters exist in this crossroads between an urban American, a what we would call traditional American, and a Caribbean Spanish. Now, Oscar's mother is a major force in the story, and her story is a large part of the book. What kind of mother is Bailey? She is, again, uh, I I want to make sure everyone understands that, like, I, I've written a book that does not attempt to define or explain all Dominicans. This is about one tiny Dominican family in New Jersey, and the mom in question, Belicia, is, in my community, we would have called her a terror where she is a woman who has survived the worst that the dictatorship could throw, has come to the United States, is basically made of iron, gives her Dominican children a middle-class background, sends them to private school, but is literally covered in scars. And these scars have completely distorted and made her personality and made her very, very difficult. Well, she has suffered, continues to suffer. And is that why she makes her kids suffer, especially her daughter? I think in some ways she doesn't think she's making them suffer. I think she thinks that she's preparing them for a world like the world that she grew up in, a world of horror. Now, you you said you didn't want uh, people to see this, Belicia as representing all uh, Dominican mothers, but Yunya actually describes her particular way of making everyone miserable as being typically Dominican. Right, but you got to remember characters, it's like New Yorkers. If you take away New Yorkers' conversations about New Yorkers, what's left? And so, which is to say that Dominicans talk all the time about what and who Dominicans are. They're always trying to generalize the same way Americans do. Americans are always saying Americans are like this. For me, it was important to represent that without endorsing it. Oscar writes stories and keeps a journal, which Junior reads. Uh, Junior actually keeps all of Oscar's writings. Uh, and uh, Oscar wants to be the Dominican Tolkien. Uh, is <laughs> is it his desire to be a writer that alienates him from others, or is it something else? Well, it's hard to say which comes first. I because think... uh, then you wind up with Junior actually becoming the writer, and he is not alienated from his community. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's you know I don't think it's um, deterministic. I certainly think a lot of a lot of Oscar's alienation is unspoken unacknowledged received trauma. I mean, trauma drifts across generations. And I do think the pain of his grandfather and of his mother has really ended up in him. Now, last month, we read Ayad Akhtar's novel, American Dervish, for this book club. And he told me that he was mostly inspired, actually, when he was uh, becoming a writer by Jewish American writers. He felt uh, like he wanted to give voice to Muslim Americans in the way that Chaim Potuk, uh, Philip Roth, Woody Allen are voices for the Jewish American experience. Uh, is that something you can identify with as a writer? Well, I mean, as a writer, I mean, you draw, I don't know about anyone else, but I've drawn so many, I've withdrawn so many debts. I'm like way over my limit at the ATM machine of other writers. Um, for me, the African-American community had an enormous impact, not only as someone from the African diaspora, but for someone trying to embrace and wrestle the American experience from an orthogonal point of view. As an immigrant, of course, Asian-Americans have been absolutely foundational. I mean, where would I be without Maxine Hong Kingston? Where would I be um, without 
uh, writers like Anjana Apachana. I mean, really, again, like I said, the multiplicity of voices that have and of artists that have made me is just it's hard to give credit to. And you try to write in a multiplicity of voices. Uh, this novel is told in different stories, some told by different people, and then uh, this is how you lose her as a collection of connected stories, not quite a novel, also uh, with a number of narrators. Is that how you prefer to write rather no. than writing a, a long narrative? No, no. I just think that each book has a, a requires certain sets of strategies. You know, Leonard, one of the things that's important is that I come out of a Caribbean experience. The Caribbean in many, many, many ways um, is, uh, you know, it's sort of a, a crossroads of all of the histories of the world. Everyone seems to have found its place there. Um, it's a foundry. It's in many ways like, a, a, you know, an incubator of what we call our present day. And for me, it was important to understand that what was going to be useful for me to describe an experience so profoundly diverse, so fascinatingly complex, so drenched in blood and saturated in joy and such a testament to survivors, I was going to have to pull on every resource I could. Ellen from North Jersey asked me uh, to ask you to say something about your concept of Marti mind. Oh, my God. Uh, Jose Marti. I'm, I'm just obsessed with Jose Marti beyond the fact that he's a, a brilliant, brilliant writer, an exceptional journalist, a Cuban patriot, but also a, um, a towering figure in the Caribbean. For me, Jose Marti was a figure who believed profoundly that our borders, who we are as nations, are not there to keep us apart, but they were there for connection. They were there for unity. He believed that a Haitian had as much stake in the Cuban liberation as a Cuban. And these days, we tend to think of our national identities like we think of an expensive car that we keep you know, in our garage that we don't want anyone else to borrow. He didn't believe that at all. He believed our national identities were capacious enough to contain everyone. So you have written a lot about the last election. Uh, and right now, that we're still seeing the debate over immigration in this country. Um, <laughs> Could you have written this book today about somebody who's just come over or, or would uh, he even be allowed, his family even be allowed to come in from uh, the Dominican Republic today? I think it's it all depends. You know, there is, of course, remember, it, history is dynamic. There are different periods. Certainly, we're in a moment of incredible cruelty. We're in a moment of toxic uh, anti-Latino rhetoric. We're in a moment of sort of mendacious political leadership assaulting immigration. This is a country, as we all know, that absolutely depends on the low-paid labor of immigrants. A listener writes in that uh, the students at her kid's school, Fieldston, are assigned to read the brief Wondrous Life of Oscawa over this summer. Uh, and um, I have been asked to tell you, tell the audience, that there are two events that they should be aware of. Juno Diaz will be reading from This Is How You Lose Her and signing books at the Union Square Barnes and Noble Store on September 3rd at 7 p.m. That's at 33 East 17th Street. And he'll also be reading and signing books at La Casa uh, Azul at 
El Museo del Barrio on September 6th at 6.30 p.m. That's at 1230 Fifth Avenue in uh, uptown Manhattan. Uh, this book uh, obviously changed your life when you win a Pulitzer Prize and then win a MacArthur. Uh, that's pretty good, isn't it? No, I, I you know, it's sometimes you're always amazed. You're amazed at what befalls you. When I finish So you're still book, a depressive? Oh, God. You know us gloomies. You know us gloomies. The Brief, Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde, now available in paperback from Riverhead Books. Thank you so much for Thank being you, with Leonard. us again, Juno.